chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. So James chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, title of our message is God is good. God is good. Now there is a true account about a missionary and his wife that served in China for several years. They were bombed by the Japanese, shot at by the communists, and then forced to leave the country by the new government in 1950. As a result of this, they returned home and went into local church ministry. Later on, one of their sons, a pilot with a missionary organization, was killed in a plane crash. In their retirement, the wife was in very poor health, with brittle bones that would bruise and fracture at the slightest knock. Yet, in all their lifetime, no one could detect in them any self-pity or complaining towards God. In fact, just the opposite was observed. They had a sweetness of character and a quiet confidence in God's goodness in their lives that not many have. So how does one become like that? How does one avoid becoming bitter at trials of life? James has already offered several principles to follow when we face trials. We are to recognize their purpose. You see that in chapter 1, 2 to 4. We are to seek God's wisdom. That's in verse 5. We are to remember who we are. That's in verses 9 to 11. We are to look to the future. Verse 12. And in no way are we to blame God for our difficulties. Verse 13. James concludes this opening section of his epistle by suggesting one final principle, which is to remind ourselves of God's goodness. We see that in verses 16 to 18. It is impossible to walk with God if we question his goodness. Some of James' readers were in peril. There was ongoing persecution of Christians at the hands of fellow Jews. This had left many to not only say, I am tempted of God, but to also express that God is not good. James begins his response to this verse in, in, six, in verse 16 of our text by saying, Do not err, my beloved brethren, or do not be deceived. So our first point is don't be deceived. James 1.16, do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't be deceived. When you go through trials, you are especially vulnerable to deception. James was not a cold-hearted theologian dispensing any dose of doctrine and saying, Call me if you're not better in a week. He addresses his readers as beloved brethren. James had a pastor's heart for these believers who were going through terrible trials. As a pastor, he knew that sound doctrine about God and his salvation is the most compassionate way to help people who are struggling through trials. God's truth gives us the rock we need to stand firm on while facing the torrent and flood of the trial. Deception is an important theme in the book of James. We can be deceived by a variety of sources. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11.14, and deceives us into thinking sin carries no consequences. We can also be deceived by others, Matthew 24.24, but the deception in James' letter is invariably self-deception, 1.16, and 1.26. So for this reason, James gives an affectionate warning addressing his readers as my beloved brethren, not to mislead ourselves about the nature of God in trials. Do not err, my beloved brethren, is literally stop 
being deceived. Stop being deceived. Don't be misled. Don't allow ourselves to be misled about the nature of God in trials. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Apparently, some of James' readers were already nibbling on Satan's bait. If your God is good and loving, why is he letting you suffer? If he is omnipotent, he could stop it. James reminds them that God is both good and sovereign. God never sends anything evil into our lives. He may allow trials, but he only gives good gifts. Now we need to properly define those good gifts that he gives. We need to define those good gifts from God's eternal, all-wise perspective and plan, and not from our own short-sighted, temporal point of view. We need to define the good gifts that God gives from his eternal, all-wise, all-knowing perspective that goes along with his plan, not from our short-sighted, temporal point of view. God sends trials for his own sovereign, loving purposes. Although it was Satan that directly attacked godly Job, clearly he did it with God's full permission. When Job's wife told him to curse God and die, Job widely answered in Job 2.10, Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? The Apostle Paul came to see that his thorn in the flesh was a cause for rejoicing, because it kept him in humble dependence on God, 2 Corinthians 12.7-10. So the good gifts that God sends may not seem to us with our limited understanding and finite minds, it may not seem to us that they are good. And these good gifts may actually include some extremely difficult trials, but they are good for us. These are good gifts. So now let's look at these good and perfect gifts. Our second point, good and perfect gifts. James 1.17a Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So James affirms here for people going through trials that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Verse 17 ties back to verses 2 to 4 with the idea that trials are one of God's perfect gifts because when we persevere in them, he uses them to produce spiritual maturity in us. Thus, God's giving is intrinsically and comprehensively good. Totally good. God's giving is intrinsically and comprehensively good. The logical implied sense is that nothing evil can possibly come from God. James' point is that these good and perfect gifts, along with all the many good things that God gives us to enjoy, the taste of good food, the love of our families, the beauty of his creation, and every wonderful experience in life, all of these good things come to us from a God whose very nature is good. As the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 119, 67-68, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. Thou art good, and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Notice, before he was afflicted, he went astray. But now that he is afflicted, he is keeping God's word. That affliction turned out to be a good gift in his life. Because now, he is keeping God's word. We may not think an affliction is a good gift, but it was the gift that was needed to bring good about in this psalmist's life. 
before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, since I have been afflicted, but now have I kept thy word. And notice, after receiving this affliction, which draws him to keep God's word, his comments are, Thou art good, and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. So God gives only good gifts. Every good thing in this world comes from God. If it did not come from God, it is not good. If it comes from God, it must be good. Even if we do not see the goodness in it immediately. Paul's thorn in the flesh was given to him by God, and it seemed to be a strange gift. Yet it became a tremendous blessing to him, 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10. The way God gives is good. It is possible for someone to give us a gift in a manner that is less than loving. The value of a gift can be diminished by the way it is given to us. But when God gives us a blessing, he does it in a loving, gracious manner. What he gives and how he gives are both good. God is good. So along the same line, God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. Satan never ultimately gives any gifts, because you end up paying for them dearly. The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. His gifts are good, and he gives them in a good way. God is good. Our next point, good and perfect and unchangeable giver. The good, perfect, and unchangeable giver. James 1.17b And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. One of the enemy's tricks is to convince us that our Father is holding out on us, that he does not really love us and care for us. When Satan approached Eve, he suggested that if God really loved her, he would permit her to eat of the forbidden tree. When Satan tempted Jesus, he raised the question of hunger. If your Father loves you, why are you hungry? The goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. Since God is good, we do not need any other person, including Satan, to meet our needs. It is better to be hungry in the will of God than full outside of the will of God. Once we start to doubt God's goodness, we will be attracted to Satan's offers. And the natural desires within will reach out for his bait. Moses warned Israel not to forget God's goodness, when they began to enjoy the blessings of the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We need this warning today. James states that all of the good things we experience come down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. This is the only time that God is called the Father of lights. He refers to the fact that he created light in the heavenly bodies that give off light. Light stands for that which is good, in contrast to Satan's evil dominion of darkness. Father points not only to God's creative power, but also to his tender care for his creatures. The phrase cometh down. This phrase in a verse 17 describes an unending succession of good gifts. Coming down in unending succession from the Father of lights, the framer of the universe, who does not change like the shifting shadows, God's goodness is unchanging. God is immutably good and has immutable goodness. God is immutably good and has immutable goodness. Now let's look at unchanging goodness, his unchanging goodness. God is fixed. The universe and life are constantly changing, but God does not change. We live in a world of rapid change, rapidly changing circumstances, rapidly changing governments, rapidly changing morals. Yet in the midst of so much change, 
the believer can say there is a fixed moral center to this universe. There is absolute unchanging truth in this relativistic culture. James points out for us the unchangeable character of God, above who gives every good gift and every perfect gift. Out of all the rich and glorious attributes of God, James selects his goodness for special attention. A well-known hymn is based on the ideas in this verse. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. God is immutably good and has immutable goodness. Goodness is the one quality James singles out over which we can be deceived when trials come. But the God we are tempted to blame for our troubles is good. God is good. George Mueller was a man of great faith who built orphanages and cared for the needy in 19th century England. When his wife died of rheumatic fever in 1870, he preached a funeral sermon on the text, Thou art good, and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Psalm 119.68 The three points to this sermon were, Number one, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Number two, the Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her with me. And number three, the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. George Mueller was convinced that when things go wrong in our lives and when our faith is put to the test, God has not changed his attitude towards us. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is good. Now the Father of Lights. When James says that with the Father of Lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, he is drawing a comparison with the Son. Like the Son, God does not vary in his essential nature, which is light. He always steadily is light. He is always good. But on earth, we do not always experience the steady light of the sun. It varies on cloudy days. At night, we don't see it. With the changing seasons. James means that when we experience what seem to be cloudy days, or dark nights, or wintry seasons of life, do not make the mistake of thinking that God has changed in his essential goodness towards us. His nature and his purpose towards his children are steady and unchanging. Therefore, we can trust God at all times and in every difficult circumstance. This has two practical applications. Number one, understanding God's attributes as revealed in his word is essential for your spiritual well-being. You must know, not as you may conceive him to be or wish him to be, but you must know God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. I've heard professing Christians say, My God is not a God of judgment. He is a God of love. That's nice. But your God is not the God of the Bible. He is a figment of your imagination. The God of the Bible is both a God of judgment and a God of love. And then number two, interpreting your circumstances in light of God's attributes is essential for your spiritual well-being. You must know God, but then when trials hit, you have to process what you know in light of your difficult situation. By faith, you have to rehearse for yourself what you know to be true maybe hundreds of times a day as you're going through that trial. The Psalms are full of this type of thing. The psalmist is in a huge crisis. He rehearses for himself what he knows about God's character and his promises. And then by the end of the psalm, his circumstances haven't changed, but his attitude and emotions have changed dramatically. 
because he has interpreted his circumstances in light of who God is. For example, in Psalm 42 and 43, there is a refrain where the psalmist talks to himself. Three times he asks Psalm 43, 5, Psalm 42, 5, and Psalm 42, 11. Three times he says this, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Then he answers himself, Psalm 43, 5, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. When you're in the emotional throes of a major trial, you have to do this by faith in God's word, not by your feelings. Your feelings will be all over the place, but your faith must rest on the facts about God as declared in his word of truth. God is good. And our next point, the giver's goodness demonstrated by our salvation. The giver's goodness is demonstrated by our salvation. James 1.18 Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. How do we know that God is good? How else but in his choosing of his own will begat he us? The new birth, our salvation, is how we know God is good. Our salvation, which is the best and most gracious expression of his goodness. God chose to give us life through the word of truth. That is the gospel message. Spiritual life comes through the instrument of the word of God, which is to be believed because it is truth. God's word is the truth about God. God's word is the truth about the world. God's word is the truth about ourselves. God's word is the truth about sin. And God's word is the truth about our need for Christ. God's goodness can be personally experienced. God's goodness is personally experienced in that God of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, James 1.18. Just as God acted freely in his goodness when he created the universe, he freely chose to bring them and us to himself, Ephesians 1, 4-5. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Everything in salvation was and is of God. We are God's people because of a total act of grace rooted in God's unprompted goodness and perfect love. Avoiding deception and trials. To avoid deception and trials, affirm God's sovereign goodness, and especially as seen in your salvation. When you go through trials, Satan may question you on these two attributes of God. Either he is not good or he must not be sovereign. Because why else are you going through these trials? But to stand firm by faith, you must cling to both God's goodness and his absolute sovereignty. James affirms God's sovereignty and salvation as the bedrock of truth to get you through trials. If God is the source of your salvation, then he isn't going to abandon you later when you face trials. As Paul put it in Philippians 1.6, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Since God saves you for this purpose, for his purpose, he will care for you through every trial. First fruits, James 1.18b says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This goes back to the Old Testament requirement that Israel bring the first portion of their crop as a thank offering to God. 
When the harvest came, the first sheaves cut were offered to the Lord, who had blessed his people with, with a fruitful crop. But those first fruits also spoke of the full harvest yet to be gathered. The Jewish Christians were the first sheaves of a harvest which has been continuing for over 2,000 years. God's unmitigated goodness will be ultimately worked out when all creation will be transformed. God also claimed the ownership of all the firstborn males who had to be redeemed, Exodus chapter 22 and 23. So let's look at two practical implications for us who are God's first fruits. Number one, as God's first fruits, he owns you and he is free to use you as he so chooses. Since he saved you by bringing you from death to life, you are not your own. You have been bought with the blood of Christ. Therefore, you must present yourself and everything that you have to God as a thank offering, a living sacrifice to use as he chooses. Have we done that? Do we live that way? Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And number two, as God's first fruits, you are to bear fruit for him. Offering the first fruits to God meant that there would be more to follow. Verse 18 reminds me of Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15:16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, ye, he may give it you. God saved you so that you would bear fruit by bringing others to know him. If you're living for yourself, spending all your time, money, and efforts to make life more comfortable for yourself, then you're serving yourself, not the Lord. James wants you to realize that if God has imparted new life to you, then you are his first fruits, especially in trials. Your aim should be to bear fruit for him and to bring glory to him. So in conclusion, Joseph is one of the best illustrations of someone in severe trials affirming both God's goodness and his sovereignty. His brothers were planning to murder him, but decided to sell him into slavery instead so they could make a profit by getting rid of him. As a slave in Egypt, he obeyed God by resisting the tempting advances of Potiphar's wife it would have been easy to rationalize yielding to her temptations. He was lonely, single in a foreign country. What prospects did he ever have for marriage? So how did God reward him for his obedience? He got thrown into an Egyptian dungeon, where he stayed for several years. But Joseph knew that God is good. He could have become a very bitter man. Instead, years later, when he was second to Pharaoh, and could have taken revenge on his brothers, he said to them in Genesis 50:20, and he could say this, because he knew that God is good. And God's good gifts don't always appear to be good to us in our finite minds, but they are good gifts. Because he knew that, he could say what he said in Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass that it is this day to save much people. God is good. His gifts are good. Sometimes that gift is an affliction, a trial, and Joseph an imprisonment, but it was a good gift. And God gives good gifts, and God is good. In his many trials, Joseph avoided spiritual deception by affirming God's sovereignty and affirming God's goodness. Whatever trials you go through, you can resist that spiritual con or Satan by holding firm to God's goodness and his sovereignty especially as seen in your salvation. 
In the midst of your trials, also remember what James says in verses 3 to 5, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. How is our outlook? How is our attitude regarding trials? For Joseph, it was a positive outlook on life, and his trust in the Lord developed the kind of outlook that helped him to keep from sinning when he was tempted by his master's wife. Genesis 39, 8-9 Behold, my master wadeth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph knew that all these blessings had come from God. It was the goodness of God through the hands of his employer that restrained him in the hour of temptation. Are you doubting God's goodness? Then hear God's word. Do not err, my beloved brethren, and do not let yourselves be deceived. God is good. Let's look at four reasons why. Number one, only good comes from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Number two, our gift giver is the good father of creation, the father of lights. What he gives is in spiritual accord with the goodness that is intimately found in him. Number three, his goodness will change, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And number four, his goodness is in accord with and an extension of the goodness we experienced in salvation when of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The goodness of God is the key to spiritual sanity. God is good. Since this is so, let us embrace him with our full trust and confidence, for he alone is worthy of all trust and glory. Psalm 86, 10-12 For thou art great, and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify thy name forevermore. God is good.